Right. Um, well, as some of you know, um, there's a couple of people um, in our church who have been competing this weekend. Um, Nick, on was it Friday night, uh, was doing a, a Strictly Come Dancing thing at Sheffield City Hall. Um, how did that go? Yeah. Right. Excellent. And also, uh, Tim has been doing his first triathlon today um, at Rother Valley, um, and he finished it. Um, I think he's a bit tired, but he finished it, um, which is excellent. Um, now, um, Nick, how confident were you on Friday? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, I think Tim was in a similar position. He, he wasn't very confident at all, um, and he, he, he wanted to finish. That, that, that was kind of it. Um, but what, what is kind of, what, what is this, what is confidence based on, um, is, is the question I want to ask. Um, and I think the answer is it's based on ability, isn't it? Um, so an Olympic triathlete um, would be pretty confident at doing the, the distance that Tim did. It wasn't, it wasn't the full Olympic distance. Um, so an, an Olympic triathlete would be very confident at doing that. A professional dancer would have been very confident getting up on, um, on the stage at Sheffield City Hall and, and, uh, and dancing. Um, and, yeah, I guess being confident that they wouldn't fall over. And <laughs> I assume that didn't happen. <laughs> Ex- that's excellent, yeah. So, right, the, the truth that I want to distill from this, I, I've got a sentence which um, might seem a little bit mind-boggling at first, but hopefully I can explain to you what it means and and it will make some sense. So we'll see if this works. Oh, was that me or was that you? (laughs) So uh, this is a sentence I've split into two parts um, because it wouldn't really fit on one slide comfortably. So um, the strength of our confidence is directly proportional to the ability of the object of our confidence. So the strength of our confidence is directly proportional to the ability of the object of our confidence. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. So the object of our confidence is the thing that we have the confidence in. So for example, uh, on Friday night, Nick had a certain amount of confidence, maybe not a lot, but a certain amount of confidence in his ability to dance. And Tim would have had a certain amount of confidence in his ability to, to complete 32 kilometres doing various different things. Um, I guess if, you were, if you're doing like a bungee jump, um, the, the object of your confidence would be the, the bungee rope um, and, and that it wouldn't snap. Um, the ability of that object is kind of how, how good it is, how good the person is at, at what they do, um, or at least how, how good we perceive them to be. Um, now, the directly proportional bit, um, which I think Rich was probably laughing at as a kind of ma- a mathematical statement, it, it just means that as one increases, so does the other. So the strength of our confidence in something will increase if we know that it is able to do what, what it should be doing. So, so the more we're confident in its, the, the more we know its ability, the more confident we will be in it. So 
let, let me say this statement again. Hopefully it makes slightly more sense now. Um, the strength of our confidence is directly proportional to the ability of the object of our confidence. So, um, so that's, yeah, that, that's something to, to think about as we go through. And, and hopefully it will start to make more sense and, and we'll be able to relate it to the passage as well. Um, so the book of Hebrews, um, I think we've kind of been saying it all along, it's written to a people who are struggling in the faith. Um, they're, they're not finding it easy. They've been Christians a while, but, um, but they were tired and they're kind of not really sure now what they believe and they're, they're lacking confidence. So the first few chapters that we've been looking at have been a, a kind of mixture of warning and encouragement. So warning not to drift away from the faith and, and back to their old ways, Judaism. Um, but also an encouragement um, as it kind of shows them how awesome Jesus is and, and kind of what they've got to look forward to as well. Um, so the passage we looked at last week was, uh, was quite a good example of that. Um, so there's a, a warning um, not to slip into, into disobedience. Um, and there's an encouragement that even though life is pretty tough now, there's going to be a great rest to come in the future. Um, and and what, what we're going to look at today follows on from that. Um, the first verse that Claire read to us starts with, therefore. And as we know by now, when we see a therefore, we've got to ask. <laughs> yeah, what is it therefore? So, um, look down at verse 14 with me. Um, I want to just take the start and the end of the sentence. We'll call it the middle for now. So it says, Therefore, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. So in other words, because there's this great Sabbath rest to look forward to, we should keep going and keep trusting God now. Now the problem with that is, what is the guarantee that it's actually going to happen? How do these Hebrews know that that rest is going to happen? So let me put the middle bit back in to verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. So that, that is the important bit that we're going to think about today, that we have a great high priest who is Jesus the Son of God. Um, hopefully I'll be able to explain more about what that means and why it's important. Um, but if I tell you that the major theme of basically the next five or six chapters of Hebrews is about Jesus being the high priest, you can kind of see how important it is. And it's not just kind of an abstract idea. Um, and, and so our confidence in God, if you look at the end of verse 16, uh, approaching God's throne of grace with confidence, I think our confidence is directly proportional to, um, to the ability of Jesus as our high priest. Right, so this is, this is the plan for the next 20 minutes or so. We're going to look at Jesus, our high priest, so how he fulfilled that role as high priest. Uh, Jesus, our great high priest, um, so how he, was, how he surpassed even the best of the, the Jewish high priests. Um, and, and finally, approaching God's throne with confidence. So how, how that fact of Jesus' 
high priesthood um, allows us to be confident in approaching God. So, um, firstly, Jesus, Jesus, our high priest. So, in the Old Testament, um, there's lots of like ceremonies and, and rituals and things like that, um, which, if you've ever read the Book of Leviticus, you'll know all about that. Um, so, the original readers of this letter would have been really familiar with them and uh, yeah a lot of them seem quite strange to us today I think it's quite tough reading through the book of Leviticus there's a lot of strange ceremonies and stuff so there's there's animal sacrifices and there's sort of lots of washing and cleaning I mean what's all that about Um, there's people being kind of separated from each other Um, but they all had a purpose they were all commanded by God Um, that they were kind of the, the right thing to do in that time. Um, but the New Testament talks about Jesus fulfilling these. So they were kind of ends in themselves. They were just pointers towards Jesus and, and what he did and the, the role that he had. Um, so that, that's why we don't carry those things on today. So one thing that comes under that category is the office of high priest. Um, it's described in Leviticus chapter 16. Essentially, their role was to make atonement for the sins of the people, so um, to, to offer up sacrifices to God, to pay for Israel's sin, and to repair the damage um, that sin had caused to their relationship with God, to kind of bring them back together. That's, that's kind of what atonement means, at one moment, so bringing, bringing them back together uh, with God. And they did this once a year. Um, they had the Day of Atonement, um, appropriately named, um, where they would offer up sacrifices um, for this. And I think uh, the, the writer of the Hebrews argues, first of all, that Jesus fulfills this role. Um, and, and I've spotted three different ways um, that he fulfills the role. There are probably more that you might spot, but we're just going to have a look at three. So the first way he shows Jesus to be a high priest is in chapter 4, verse 15. If you just look at it um, with me. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So Jesus had sympathy for our weakness. Um, He was tempted. He was human. The high priest had to be a, a human being. Um, because he was man's representative to God. He had to be a man um, from among men, um, it says in chapter 5 and verse 1. And Jesus was certainly those things. He was a human and he was a Jew. Um, but because he was a human, he was tempted. And not just kind of the, the thing that comes to mind when we talk about Jesus being tempted is probably... Um, in the wilderness where the devil tempts him three times. But I think throughout Jesus' life he would have been tempted um, the, the same way that we are. Um, maybe not kind of facing the exact temptations that we do, but he was, he was tempted in a, in a very human way. And I think especially um, given the power that was available to him, um, being God and, and the pain that he knew he was going to go through, um, I think he was tempted as much as any other human has been. 
So because of this, because he's been tempted, he can sympathise with us in the same way that an uh, Israelite high priest would have been able to sympathise. I mean, Jesus can sometimes seem quite remote from our anxieties and our worries that we face day to day. And we might want to kind of put him at, at arm's length at that point. But, but actually, he, he does know what it's like to be human, to be tempted, to feel these emotions. And I think it's a great comfort to know that. The second thing is, um, Jesus was appointed by God. Um, if we look down to chapter 5 and verse 4. Uh, No one takes this honour upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. So Aaron, who is the first high priest, um, uh, they were given a a direct command that Aaron was to be the high priest. And from that point on, it was kind of a hereditary thing. So Aaron passed it on to his son. Passed it on to his son. Um, Although by the time, by this time, the Roman governors I think, were choosing the high priest instead. Um, so no one could kind of come in and say, you know, it'd be great at being high priest. Me, I'd do a great job at it. No, no one could kind of come in and, and say that. I was, I was trying to think of like a modern day example of that sort of thing. Um, I guess... The, the king or queen of this country is kind of a, a similar thing. No one can go and say, me, pick me for, for the next king. You know, it's, it's down to family. And, uh, and in this case, it says it's, it's down to God to appoint the high priest. Um, and Jesus was appointed by God. He never took glory for himself. He, he was always working for his father's glory. He, he didn't um, take on this role of high priest so that he could gain honour for himself. Um, but God appointed him as high priest, as, as we see in these verses. And finally, and most importantly, uh, the purpose of the high priest was to offer sacrifices for sins. Um, chapter 5, verse 1. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So they did this once a year, as I said, on the Day of Atonement. Um, And first of all, the high priest would have to make atonement for their own sins and they would take a bull and they would sacrifice it. Um, And after that, they would take uh, two goats and um, they would kind of draw lots and one of them... Um, would be sacrificed for sin. One of them would have the sins of the people kind of prayed over it and would be led outside of the camp to kind of represent um, the sin being removed far away. Um, so, and that, that, was, that was the scapegoat. And if, if you want to kind of read more about that, that's in Leviticus chapter 16. Um, and Jesus certainly did do this part of his role. Um, 1 Timothy 1, uh, verse 15. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That was his whole purpose of coming. So I think we we can see that the writer sets up the ability of Jesus to be the high priest, um, which seems like a good place 
to move on and talk about how Jesus wasn't just another high priest, but he was superior. He was the great high priest. Um, And in keeping with the threes, we've got three ways that Jesus was superior to to the other high priest, why he was the, the final high priest, the great high priest. Um, we said that when Jesus was tempted, that, that he was tempted, that, um, that he could, can sympathise with us um, because of this. But if we look back to chapter 4 and verse 15, um, we see that there's a big difference. Um, Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So he was tempted, but he didn't give in to those temptations. He was sinless. Um, the Israelite priests had to offer sacrifices for their own sins, but Jesus didn't have to do that because he was morally perfect. He kept all of God's commands, so he didn't have to pay for his own sin. Um, the next one is that Jesus is eternal. Uh, we're told twice that Jesus was a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Uh, Melchizedek is a bit of a mystery. Um, he just pops up for a few verses in Genesis chapter 14, and we don't really know where he came from, and we don't know where he goes to. He just kind of pops up um, when Abraham has won this battle, um, gives out some bread and wine, takes his tithes, and then gets lost, and we kind of don't really hear much about him again. Um, and this was... This was well before Aaron was appointed as the first high priest. So Melchizedek was kind of in his own order. There was no one before him. There was no one after him. It was just, it was just kind of one on his own. And I suppose that's the kind of comparison that, um, that the writer of the Hebrews is making with Jesus, that he's not um, inherited the priesthood from um, his father, you know, kind of down the line of, of Aaron. Um, He's, he's, he's on his own. There was no one before him. There'll be no one after him. And there doesn't need to be anyone after him. Um, because, well, if we think about the high priests in the Old Testament, the reason they needed to pass it on was because every year they had to keep repeating the sacrifices for sin. But Jesus was the final sacrifice for sin. So there didn't need to be any more sacrifice after that. So he was, he was the final high priest and he will be the high priest forever. Now the final difference comes from verse 9 of chapter 5. So we're going to look down at that. Um, and once made perfect, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Which is pretty incredible. Jesus didn't offer animal sacrifices for sin. He offered himself. He, he paid for sins by sacrificing himself. He was the only high priest who was without sin. And yet he died for sin. Um, now later on in, in Hebrews, um, we're, we're going to kind of have a look at the, the animal sacrifices. Um, but it kind of talks about how they, they were just pointers. They, they, were, they didn't have value in themselves. 
if I can put it like that, they, they were pointers towards Jesus. Um, oh, by the way, the start, the start of verse 9 talks about Jesus being made perfect, um, which might be a slightly confusing verse. Um, we've already talked about Jesus being sinless. I don't think this is talking about moral perfection. But the word that is used there, um, the, the Greek word, um, if, if you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's the same word that was used for um, like the, the consecration of the high priest. So I guess it's, it's kind of saying that he, um, he became fully qualified as the high priest. Um, so, so it doesn't mean that he was once sinful and became sinless. It means that he was once kind of not high priest anyway, and then he became fully qualified when he died for sin as the high priest. Um, but yeah, his, his sacrifice, it was, it was difficult. It was tough. The last few verses that we read, um, there's, there's a lot of emotion there. Jesus was scared. And he knew that pain was coming. And he, he kind of pleaded with God, is there, is there another way? But there wasn't another way. And Jesus humbly submitted to his, his father's will, even though he knew the pain that was coming. So we've got the man Jesus who suffered the physical torment of crucifixion. Um, but also the son of God who suffered the even more incredible agony of, of separation from his father, just so that he could become the source of salvation um, for those who obey him, as it says, for those who, who put their trust in him. So Jesus is fully able, more than any high priest before him, um, to, to fulfil this role. Um, I've, pro- I've probably not said a lot of things that are kind of new or particularly surprising there. Um, it's kind of all there in the passage for you to read. But the really exciting thing about this passage, the, the kind of the heart of it, um, only, only really comes to the fore when we understand what, the high, what, what Jesus being high priest means. Um, and, and when we're convinced that he's able to fulfil the role. Um, so if we go back to that statement from the start, um, the strength of our confidence is directly proportional to the ability of the object of our confidence. So, the point that the writer is making is because Jesus is our high priest, um, because, he's, because he's our great high priest, we can have confidence to approach God's throne, um, as he says, because Jesus is absolutely fully able to do that role as high priest, we can be absolutely supremely confident in approaching God. Um, what, what do you mean by approaching God's throne? Well, I guess as we approach God's throne, we approach God. And, and that is amazing um, because we're sinners. We're imperfect. If we look back to chapter 4 and verse 13, um, it says that um, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God knows everything we've ever done and thought and said. And 
we have no right to, to kind of have that access to God. Why, why should God grant us, sinners, an audience with him, the king of the universe? But because Jesus is our great high priest, he does. Um, and I think there are two uh, different instances where we need to approach um, God that are suggested in the passage. So firstly, uh, we can approach God in our weakness. We are fragile human beings. We're imperfect. We sin. Uh, we mess up. Life is, is messy. We get things wrong. We give into temptation. And when, when we're kind of feeling like that, when we're, we're down and feeling weak, sometimes we want to put God at arm's length and kind of put him over there and kind of be by, be by ourselves. You know, maybe we feel unworthy or we feel like God is, is not wanting to help us. Um, imagine if you'd insulted the Queen or you'd given one of her corgis a little kick or something. Would you, would you want to march into the throne room and kind of declare yourself there and say, Oi, Queen, I want to, want to have a chat with you. You just, you just wouldn't, would you? You'd be terrified. Um, and, and you certainly wouldn't be confident going in there. But we have someone who has dealt with our sin. Our great high priest who sits at God's right hand and pleads for us. So when we feel like that, when we feel weak, when we feel unworthy, then we should go to God and go to God with confidence because we know that Jesus is our high priest who has dealt with our sin. And we know that God will not just listen to us, but he'll answer our prayers and he'll give us um, the, the strength to kind of get through what, what we're going through and to, um, I guess, the, the power um, to overcome the sin that we're struggling with. God's throne is a throne of grace and uh, we, we don't go there in our own strength. Um, we go there with the, the confidence that comes from knowing Jesus as our high priest. Um, I said there are two ways. The, the other way is um, that there is going to be one final time when everyone is going to have to approach God's throne and give an account of themselves. And I guess that's our final judgment. And this is where Christianity is different from all of the other uh, or mo- at least most of the other religions in the world. <coughs> so most of the religions, the people of those religions will try the hardest to do all that, um, all that their God requires of them. And then they expect they'll go to their God at the end and say, this is what I've done, is it enough? And there's a, there's a question there, there's a doubt there. Have I done enough to earn God's acceptance but the Christian goes up to God and says I I know that I'm not worthy I know that there is no way I've done enough I fall way short of your standards God but there's, there's someone there Jesus our great high priest who has paid for all of our sin and so even though we know um, we, we don't deserve it. We can go with confidence to God. And I think that is just amazing. And, um, and, and we get that confidence by 
obeying Jesus by following his command to, to trust in him, to put our lives in his hand. So since we have this great high priest, Jesus the Son of God, we can have confidence in entering God's presence, in approaching his throne. And we said earlier that the problem that the Hebrews had was that they were kind of drifting, they weren't sure of what they believed, they, they were not confident. And the writer is telling them to hold firmly to their faith. So, um, so what, what's, the, what's the missing link there? How does the confidence help them to hold firmly? I guess it's difficult to do something if you're not sure it's going to um, help you in any way. So if, if you're on a diet and you've not lost weight in a few weeks, then it's hard to keep going, isn't it? Or if you know, you've, you've entered into a, some kind of race, um, in, into a marathon, it's, it's hard to get motivated to go for a run if the marathon might be called off, if you think that's going to happen. And it's really tough to keep following a God if you don't even know that he's going to accept you anyway, despite your best efforts. But to have confidence that you can approach God, that whatever you do, that despite everything you've done to kind of insult him and other people, um, despite all of that, we can have confidence that he will accept us because of Jesus, our high priest, and that will help us to, to hold firm and to keep going until that day. And we're going to sing um, Before the Throne, um, which is one of my favourite hymns, and it's just full of these truths about Jesus being our high priest and being confident in approaching God. And so we'll, we'll kind of sing this as a, as a uh, closing prayer.